0: All right, so we're going to continue in our series, The Promise. And uh, The Promise is based around the fact that God has revealed Jesus, the Messiah, in the Old Testament. And we're looking at, Shane's been showing you ways that he's revealed himself. Today, my assignment is to show you the Psalms, the book of Psalms. And what I want you to understand, and what I want you to know, is that did you know that the Psalms reveal more about Jesus than any other Old Testament book? It is an amazing collection of songs and uh, we're going to see some amazing things in the book of Psalms today. So I want to start this morning our time together with uh, you know, kind of just giving you a, a, a brief history of how this kind of unfolds. So Jesus, on the day of his resurrection, uh, is, is, uh, he's resurrected, he's shown himself to several of the women, but a lot of the disciples have not seen Jesus yet. So there are two disciples that are walking to the ro- down the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and two of his disciples, Clopas being one, we don't know the, who the other one was, was walking along the road. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in a miraculous way. And uh, and the, the the miracle is is that Jesus somehow, some way, withheld his identity from them. They could not. They did not recognize that this was the resurrected Jesus that was walking with them during this trip. And so they are talking and Jesus asked them what they were talking about. And they said, you must not be from these parts, right? I mean, you must not be around here because don't you know what happened to Jesus, the one that we thought was going to be the Messiah? And it turns out they crucified him and we don't know where he is. And they put him in a grave. And and, uh, at that moment in time, as they said that to Jesus, Jesus then removes the blindness from their eyes so that now they recognize we've been walking with Jesus. This is him. This is, he's resurrected. And they were blown away. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 44, this is what Jesus says to them. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now what Jesus does here is masterful because he gives a sweeping overview of the Old Testament. The Old Testament can be divided into three parts, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And so Jesus says, Don't you know that all of those writings were written about me and they must be fulfilled? And uh, it was just amazing. And, there, and as he spoke these words to them, the Bible says that their hearts burned within them. I mean, it was an amazing God moment. And so, what I want to do with you today is I want to go back to the Psalms and I want to show you these things, at least a few of them. I, I don't have time. I mean, we have you know, just a few minutes this morning together. I don't have time to say all that there is in the book of Psalms, but I want to show you just a few things out of the book of Psalms that should make your head spin and, uh, and should cause you to, you know, to have your heart burn within you in terms of just seeing what was written a thousand years before Jesus came, things written a thousand years before. And now they are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so it should cause you to walk away. And my heart's prayer for you today is that when you walk away from this service today that you have confidence, I mean capital C, confidence, in the word of God as God's breathed book to you and I so that God has written history in advance so that you and I can know and understand and have confidence that Jesus is gonna come back just like he said he was. So is that fair? Is that where you wanna go with me? I'm gonna take you there anyway, so it doesn't matter. So here we go. So what do, the, what do the Psalms say about Jesus? So the first thing right out of the shoot that I want you to see is the Psalms declare the deity of Jesus. So what that, that's a fancy biblical word. That's a fancy theological word, deity. What does that mean? That means that what the Psalms show is that Jesus was God. He was the eternal God equal to the Father, equal to the Spirit. He was God. He was God. So with that in mind, let me show you this. In Hebrews chapter number 45, verse 6, that's the first thing. And I forgot something, is that on the screen in back of me, there's going to be the psalm that we talk about, and then we're going to put up there the fulfillment of how that's fulfilled a thousand years later in the New Testament. Okay? There we go. So here we go, Psalm 45. This is what it says. But to the Son, he says, stop there for just a second. This is a conversation between the Father and Jesus. All right? Are you with me so far? I mean, this is the 11 o'clock service. You've got to be with me, okay? You've been good so far. So don't, don't let me down. So Psalm 45, 6 says, But to the Son, He says, the Father says to the Son, Your throne. Notice what God says to the Son. Your throne, O God. You see that? Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. I don't know what you think about Jesus, but God thinks that Jesus is God. The Father Confesses that Jesus is in fact God. And then in the New Testament, we fast forward a thousand years and we see this New Testament fulfillment in the book of Hebrews, chapter one. This verse is quoted by the author of Hebrews verbatim. It says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You'll rule with a scepter of justice. And so you see, this is stated a thousand years earlier. Jesus comes, and then the apostles recognize who he is and now, and now state it again. So did you know that most Americans don't believe, in fact, well over the majority of Americans don't believe that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem? Did you know that? They accept that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They accept that he was born of a virgin, accept that, that he was called the Son of God, accept all those things. But the average American do, does not understand or does not believe that Jesus is God, and that he preexisted his birth. That, that wasn't Jesus' beginning. Jesus had no beginning. He was with the Father for, forever and ever and ever. Three in four Americans believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but less than half of that believe that he was, existed beforehand. And that surprises me a bit. I hope it surprises you a bit. So that's his deity. That's the first thing that we see in the book of Psalms. It gets better as we go along, by the way. So here we go. The second thing we see in the Psalms a thousand years before this happens, we see the rejection of the Messiah. His rejection. That he would be rejected by the religious leaders of the day and that he, would be, that he would be pushed aside. Psalm 118, and this is a fascinating passage of Scripture. By the way, you all know, I know you know this, but the book of Psalms isn't just a book in the Bible. There's, this isn't just a collection of writings in the Bible. These were songs that Israel sang. This was their hymn book, just like we sang just a few minutes ago. This is, these are the songs that Israel sang. And Psalm 118 is what is called a psalm of Passover. Just put that in your kanagin for just a minute. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But just put in your kanagin that you know, bottom line is that this was a psalm of Passover. And I'm going to explain to you what that means in just a minute. So Psalm 8, 118 says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. That's the prediction of Jesus' rejection. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So time out. Let me just address you know, myself to just the Christians in the crowd for just a minute, Uh, for those of you that are raised in the church and been around church for a long time, I hear this all the time. I hear Christians get up and they, you know, they'll say, this is the day the Lord has made. They're thinking of today. They're thinking of Sunday. They're thinking of Monday. This is thinking, of course, of Friday, right? That's the day the Lord has made. And we'll rejoice and be glad in that. But this is what I want you to see from this passage of Scripture. I want you to see this clearly. That isn't the day that God is talking about. The day that God is talking about you ready for this? Is the day that Jesus was rejected. This is the day, the day that the cornerstone was rejected. This is that day, and we should be glad and rejoice in it. You know why we should be glad and rejoice in it? And why God made that day? It's because that is the day that your redemption was sealed. That was the day that you got To go to heaven forever. That's why why this day is such an important day, and we should be glad in it. This is the day that Jesus was rejected. Say, how could we rejoice in that? Just like I said, it's the day that God cemented the reality of your salvation forever and ever and ever and ever. And then we see in 1 Peter, let's fast forward that psalm, you know, a thousand years later, Peter gets up, and he writes this book, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, this is what he says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone, has become the cornerstone. That is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Now, this is what makes it so unbelievably good. And I'm probably going to show you something that maybe most of you don't know. Okay, probably some of you, some of you are smarter than me. In fact, most of you are smarter than me. I just studied the Bible a little longer than you. So here we go. This is what I want you to see. Psalm 118 was a Passover song. Remember I said put that in your, your canogon? So what does that mean? That means that this was a song that Israel sang every year as they participated in Passover. That's when Jesus was crucified, right? On the Passover. This was a song that they would sing every year. So what that means is, is that from the time that Jesus was just a wee little kid, maybe three or four years old, his mama taught him to sing this song, taught him the words of this song. And so Jesus began to sing this song at three or four years old. Can you imagine that? The Son of God, the eternal God, is singing this particular song. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall be glad and rejoice in it. The day that, you know, the the cornerstone has been rejected. And this is what is so marvelous about this, is that more than likely, you know, in in the Last Supper, when he's sitting around with his disciples, it says, at the end of the evening, they sang a hymn. This is probably that hymn. This is probably the hymn, high probability, that this was a hymn, if not there, on the way to the garden, they more than likely sang this song. So Jesus was singing these words on the night that he was arrested and eventually the next day crucified. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the scripture is so precise, it is an amazing book. That's the rejection of the Messiah. And then we see the death of the Messiah. And this is what's so amazing about this. Are you with me so far? We having fun? Because if you're not having fun, I'm going to start over. Okay, you having fun? Are you having fun so far? All right, so now let's look at the death of the Messiah. It gets even better than this. This was written a 1,000 years before the crucifixion, which means that I want you to put this in your canogon too. I want you to remember that crucifixion hadn't been invented when Psalm 22 was written. That's where we're going to go in just a minute. They didn't know anything about crucifixion. They didn't know anything about, in fact, crucifixion comes. This is something that you probably should know. The crucifixion comes originally from the Assyrians. That's why people hated the Assyrians and were so afraid of the Assyrians because when you got captured by the Assyrians, they impaled you. That was the precursor to the the crucifixion. The Romans came along and said, we can do better than that. Impalement's nothing, that's child's play. Let's, let's do this thing called crucifixion. So the Romans invented a way to punish people that would literally scare, scare the H-E-double-L out of them. <laughs> Honestly, that's what this was about. So with that in mind, we're gonna read Psalm 22 and we're gonna see how marvelous this passage really is. Psalm 22 says, this is how it starts. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That word sound familiar? We're going to get to that in a minute. Why are you so far from, away from me when I groan for help? Is this, is this the one the Lord relies on? That was said to him when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that was said to him. Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. Does that sound familiar? My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet, that, was, that you could only know that if you understood crucifixion. So this is so specific about the crucifixion. They divided my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. Bottom line is, listen to me carefully, they gambled for Jesus' clothing at the end of the crucifixion exactly as the cross happened, exactly. This, this, this is so powerful. It's curious to me, that you and I could be filled with, you know, we could be horrified with indignation, whenever a cat kills a sparrow, right? I mean, that grosses people out when a cat kills a sparrow, or we watch one of those, you know, documentaries on TV and we see how a lion comes up and kills his prey, and and you know, we're all going, oh, I don't want to, I didn't want to see that, right? I don't want to see that. And uh, the other day, I, I, we, my wife and I came walking out of our house and there were a bunch of feathers all over our lawn. And, uh, you know, I knew it would happen because, you know, a cat in the neighborhood got loose and, and uh, it, you know, did its thing on a dove, more than likely. It looked like dove feathers to me. And so my wife comes out and sees this and she says, why are these, all these feathers on our lawn? And of course I said to her, it's because doves shed their feathers every year. <laughs> and I don't think she believed it, but uh, I tried. I tried. And uh, now think about that. Think about how horrified people get when they see something just horrendous happen. And uh, you know, in the lobby this morning, I was standing out there, and one of the members of Grace Church this last week got his finger cut off. And I um, mean, it was gross. And he was standing there with his bandage, just nub, and and, uh, and uh, he's explaining the story to me, and I'm wanting to throw up. And. I'm going, why are you telling me this before I go on stage? I'm, you know, and I, I'm thinking, can I walk away? Can I walk away now? I don't want to, I don't want to hear this. No, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to see it because, you know, that looks like it was really painful. And he, to, he described his journey to the hospital. And I'm thinking, wow, that is just so gross. I don't want to see that. But listen to this. Think about this. Every lie, every lure, every act done in darkness was a piece of God's wrath being poured out on the Savior. It's curious that we can be grossed out about, a, spare, about a, a cat killing a sparrow, but every weekend, Sunday after Sunday, we hear the, the story, most Sundays, of humans killing God in a horrific, horrible way. We hear the story of crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and we've become so numb to it that we go, oh, that's just, that's, just, that's just Christianity. It amazes me that we have been so numb to that that we don't have the same reaction to that, even worse, than when we see something like a cat killing a sparrow. I mean, we go, oh, ah, I don't want to see that. And yet we listen every weekend to the killing of God in our weekend services. And we walk away as if that was just normal life. That should send a chill down your spine when you think about the fact that you should be shocked, you should be shocked by the fact that God himself was brutally murdered, murdered innocently on your behalf. That should send a shock into our soul. Think about this every lie every lure, every act done in darkness was a part of the cup of wrath that God poured out on his own son. On your behalf. It was the cup you deserved. It was the cup that you deserved. And yet, God took it. Slowly, hideously, all those sins that you've ever committed were absorbed. The wrath of God was absorbed because of those sins It was absorbed in the body of the son. The spotless lamb of God was blemished The one who knew no sin became sin. The king turns away from his prince. The undiluted wrath of a sin-hating father falls upon a a sin-filled son now. Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that, my friend, should stun you. It should cause you to freeze in your tracks for you to stop the insidiousness of your busy life and recognize that this God... This God took on God's own wrath for you on your behalf. He stepped between you and the Father in such a dramatic way. In a way that I don't know that you and I could even begin to imagine the agony of what it felt like to have the wrath of God. The wrath of God the Father poured on A sinless, I mean, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He healed the sick. He fed the poor. He showed mercy to the people. He showed mercy to sinners like you and me. And yet the religious crowd took him and they brutally murdered him. Let's call it for what it is. They brutally murdered him. And then the Father pours out his wrath. And then when we see this from the cross, out of Psalm 22, we see this from the cross. My God, my God. Why, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine what that moment felt like? It was the most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness, loneliness in history. Think about that, he's abandoned. He's abandoned by his father who can't even look at him now. And this cry of agony didn't come from a prisoner that probably deserved loneliness. It didn't come from a patient in a hospital. It didn't come from a widow who had lost her husband. It came from a hill. This cry of loneliness came from a cross, from a Messiah who, for all eternity, was worshiped by the angels and adored by his Father. And yet, we see this cry My God, my God. He screamed in agony. And if that doesn't move you, you should check your pulse. You should check your pulse. That's the crucifixion, seen a thousand years before it happened. And then we come to the resurrection. This is, you know, the good part of the story. Psalm 16, verse 9. This is an amazing section of scripture. Psalm 16, 9 says, no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. So, David wrote this. David the king wrote this psalm. But was he writing it about himself? He wasn't writing it about himself because we're going to see that in just a minute. Peter, when he gets up at Pentecost, remember Jesus has died, he rises again, powerful. And Peter gets up at Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes upon the church. And this is what Peter says. This is what Peter says The people standing out in the crowds, the religious people of the day. This is what he says. He says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. He wasn't talking about himself, and this is why. For you you can look at his grave right over there. He probably pointed to his grave. You can see that his grave is still among us, and he still sits in the grave. But this Jesus, whom you crucified, that's what he said, whom you crucified is risen again. Man, that's powerful. And so we see that a thousand years before it happened. Written in the Psalm, Psalm 16. One of my favorite old dead guys, a guy by the name of James Vernon McGee, when I was in Bible college, He happened to be on the radio every time that I, you know, drove to school. So I would listen for, I had a half hour drive, so I'd listen to James Werner McGee every week. And I heard him tell this story, and I never forgot it. And I've used it several times here at Grace because it's so impactful to me. And so this is the story, old dead guy, uh, impactful, powerful preacher. And uh, this is what he says. James Werner McGee was on the radio, and he's saying, uh, a lady had wrote in and said, my pastor says that Jesus faked his death. He swooned his death. That's the technical term. He swooned his death. And uh, I was wondering if what you think about that, James Vernon McGee. And uh, so this is what Dr. McGee said to this lady. He says, this is what I want you to do. So I want you to beat your pastor with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Let's start there. Nail him to a cross for six hours. Run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him into an airless tomb for three days and then see if he says the same thing. That's what James Vernon McGee said. So that is the resurrection. And then we see in the Psalms, this is such good stuff, history written in advance, we see in the Psalm the coming kingdom of God. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, I, I challenge you to go home this afternoon and read Psalm 2. You don't got anything else to do. I mean, you know, there's some boring football games on this afternoon, so read Psalm 2. At least in the commercials, read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the clearest clearest, clearest section of Scripture in the Old Testament that deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ and what happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's powerful. So let me read some of it to you. I'm not gonna read all of it to you because I want you to go home and read your Bible, but this is what it says. The Lord said to me, Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son. Again, this is the father speaking to the son. You are my son. Today I become your father. Literally, what that literally, it comes from a Hebrew word which literally means appointed you. So let me read it with that idea. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have appointed you as the son. I have app- as the father, I've appointed you as the son. Uh, only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whore as your possession. Just ask, and I'll give it to you. That's what the father says to the son. And the son asks, and it comes to pass. Then we fast forward that 1,000 years, in fact, about 1,100 years, and we come to the book of Revelation, your favorite book of the Bible, Amen the one you read every day because you know what's in it and you love it what's in it and, and you're not afraid of it because you know there's a special blessing for those who read the book of revelation that's what it says did you know that and so as we read the book of revelation 1100 years after psalm was written the psalm was written this is what we discovered then i saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there ooh that's scary heaven's open white horse standing there its rider was named faithful and true For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. That's Psalm 2. And if you read it all, you'll see it. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except he himself. He he wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the Word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus, fulfillment of of, of Psalm chapter 2. And Jesus is now ready and able, and willing, and what we're waiting for right now is what, for the coming of, of Jesus Christ the second time. That's what we're waiting for, aren't you? I'm waiting for that. I long for it. I get up every day thinking, man, I hope it's today. I want it to be today. Jesus, come quickly. And if you're not gonna come for everybody else, just come for me. <laughs> I'm just saying, Jesus, I mean, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it, amen? I'll have my own personal rapture. But he says no so far. And so, I wanna end with this story because this is such a powerful story. There's a famous painting, this is true, you can Google this. I would never lie to you anyway, but Google it anyway. There's a famous painting in the museum called Checkmate. Hangs in a museum, and it's hung there for years, and uh, here's the problem with the famous painting Checkmate, is that a, you know, a chess a scholar, or expert, whatever you call him, began to study that painting one day, and he recognized and discovered that it wasn't really checkmate. That was the title of the painting. The author, you know, painted this scenario and he thought that he had checkmate going on. And the picture is two people playing chess. And this expert comes along and discovers that, hmm, that's not checkmate. Because there's one more move that the, the painter didn't see or missed. And so here's what I want to say to you. Jesus has one more move. Are you ready for it? It's one more move. And when he makes that move, listen to me very carefully. When Jesus makes this move, everything after that is too late for you. When that move takes place at the coming of Jesus Christ, when we see him coming in the clouds of glory, when Jesus comes back, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, when he comes back to take ownership of this planet, everything that you've done is cemented at that point. There's no second chance after death. Get right with God right now. Right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait for a week. Make sure you're right with God right now because this next move is Jesus' finalization of the ownership of this planet. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. When he sets down his feet on the Mount of Olives and he declares himself to be the king, the righteous judge. And he brings justice and power and goodness and healing to the nations. But for you this day, if you haven't crossed that line of faith, if you wait too long to cross that line of faith, that day will be too late. Look me in the eye when I tell you that. I tell you that with all the love in my heart. Make your decision today. God has one more move. And we're waiting for that move. We're longing for that move. That's what we pray for every day. That's what we should be praying for every day. Even Lord Jesus, like John said, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. Come suddenly. I'm waiting for that king to make his move. And I'm praying for you that you'll make your move. That you have made your move. That your move is to believe on him whom God has sent. And so I invite you right now where you're sitting to settle that in your heart that you're going to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So having said all that, here's the application of a God who writes history in advance. Here it is. Listen to it very carefully. Make no mistake about it. Here should be my response. As I see how particular God is in writing history in advance, this should be my response. Number one, I should be confident in God's word. I should be confident in God's word. I should open it up up every day knowing and believing that this is God's written word to me. And that he has something to say to me every day if I'll just open the word of God and listen to what it has to say. He's got something to say to me every, every day of my life. Secondly, you should surrender to God's will right now. Listening to what I've said, If everything that I've said is true, if everything that I've said is true, if God writes history in advance, you should surrender to his will today. Stop fighting him. Stop trying to play out your game. Stop trying to do your thing. And just simply say, not my will be done, but God's will be done. You should bow your knee to him right now, right now. You should bow your knee to him. And say, God, what I want more than anything else in my life is your will that's what I want with all my heart that's what my, all my soul I want your will that should be the normal response to us to a God who's coming back who a God who writes history in advance and then you should serve God unconditionally stop trying to stop trying to play your card stop trying to tell God what you're going to do and what you're not going to do I've had people say you know I'll do anything for God just don't send me to Russia I don't, I don't, I don't like the cold. Stop that. If God wants you to, you know, go to Russia, then go. Surrender to him unconditionally and stop trying to say, this is how I'm gonna control you, God. We're controllers, give it up. You are not in control anyway. So just surrender to his will and start serving him unconditionally. And then, fourthly, live a life marked by purity. The reason that we get history written in advance, according to John, Jesus' favorite disciple, it's so that you and I could have lives of purity. We are pure, even as we purify ourselves, we should live in purity, we should eschew evil, and we should live, we should run to righteousness, we should run to opportunities to live in a godly way. We should live in the light every day instead of trying to have part of our lives in the darkness. So I should Pursue purity. And then lastly, I should live right now a life that wants to please him. So what that means is that if you've never been baptized, we're going to baptize in just a minute. We're going to open this thing up and we're going to baptize. We're going to invite people to come down and get baptized. If you've never been baptized, you don't have to sign up. You don't have to do anything. All you've got to do is when we give an invitation right now, when we give an invitation just in a few minutes to come and. and get baptized, you should get out of your seat right now. You should get out of your seat, run to the back, get your clothes on, and get down here and get baptized. That's the reasonable response to a God who knows history in advance. It is. It is. There should be nothing. There should be nothing in your way. You, there should be nothing in your way to say, if I have not been baptized since I've been saved, that that's what I'm going to do. See, I'm, I'm just a farmer from Fallon. But here's what I know. God, God, is worthy is worthy of my devotion to him and my surrender to him and my life for him that's what I know for sure I don't know much but I know that he deserves your best and I know that you should get baptized today if you've not been baptized that's what I know for sure and so my prayer for you is that you'll stop playing your games with God you'll stop trying to act like God you'll just simply say God here I am I'm yours Whatever you want, that's what I'm going to do. Take your excuses and flush them down the toilet where they belong and come and live for Him. Is that not reasonable? Based on a God who was crucified, was raised again, was coming again, who writes history in advance. So Father, today, today I pray earnestly, God, that you would take my words and use them right now I know that people right now, are, their heart's pounding, thinking about, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? You know who I'm talking to, God. And you know who you're talking to. I pray that you would just prompt them to get out of their seat and come down and get baptized. In Jesus' holy name, I pray, amen.